Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. I hope you're doing well today and have enjoyed already connecting with each other and singing these songs to Jesus. You having a good time? All right, that's good. We've sung some powerful words. I don't know if you paid attention to that last song, but really we were asking God, do whatever it takes to make us more like your son Jesus. Transform us. We want to be with you. And uh, I hope that was true. You weren't just singing that because it's like, oh, I kind of like that beat or that was good. Or you dropped the kids off and you're just glad you weren't listening to them scream in the car or like whatever's going on there. Um, but if you think about those words, for God to do that, that's, uh, that's going to require not me saying some persuasive words in the sermon or something funny enough that you go, oh, that's true. Um, it's going to be the Holy Spirit transforming us. And uh, that's what I want. That's what I hope will happen. And so I'm going to pray that that would take place as we open up the Scriptures together. And if you just bow your hearts with me, just in a, a posture of humility, I'm going to go to the Lord, ask Him to work um, through this message and through God's Word as we open it up together. So let's, let's pray. Um, and Father, I just come before you. I'm, I'm thankful that you love us. I'm thankful that you have uh, so many people in our city that want to worship your name. I just assume uh, many that are tuning in online or that are present today are here because they love you. And uh, some of us love you and we're struggling and we're tempted to walk away from you. Will you give us truth today uh, that would help us not do that? And some of us love you and we just need encouragement. I pray you'd encourage. Uh, There are people in a room this size that are thinking about leaving their spouse or taking their life or making poor decisions. Father God, I pray you'd pour truth into that today. And uh, I pray for... Uh, people that are just passionate for you, that you'd make them higher impact Christians than they were when they walked into this building. Will your presence saturate this room? Will you open our hearts and do all the things that you say your word does? Show us ourselves, pierce us, convict us, encourage, comfort, challenge, change, do what you do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I remember when my kids were little, I would get down on my knees uh, with them and they were toddlers and I would say to them, uh, good decisions, good results. Bad decisions, bad results. And then soon through experience, they would learn whether that was true or not. Good decision, good result, or bad decision, bad result. And uh, you can talk to them about what that meant at our house. But uh, most of you know from experience, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, whether your parents taught you that or didn't teach you that, that if you, you know, just Netflix and binge, uh, eat potato chips and just watch TV, that's going to be bad for your health. You know if you eat healthy and exercise. Now, we can debate about what's healthy and whether it's keto and no carbs or lots of carbs and no meat or only meat and like all that stuff. We can argue about all that stuff. But if you eat healthy and exercise, that's good for your health. Good decisions, good results. Bad decisions, bad results. You can argue about different financial plans and what's the best investment. But most of you know if you spend more money than you make, bad decision, going to be bad result. If you save and give and and use God's principles, you know, good decisions, good results. Like, we just know that's kind of how life works. It's Galatians chapter 6, even though many of us don't realize that. You reap what you sow. And many of you here, I just, I want you to think about what are some decisions you've made that have had significant consequences? (laughs) Some of you are married and you're sitting next to some of them right now. (laughs) Or you have kids and there were some decisions that were made and those are the good consequences, bad consequences. I'm not trying to interpret right now. Just think through your decisions. We see it in other people's lives. I saw a guy on Twitter this week was tweeting about a job interview that he was going to. He was running late. As he was rushing in, uh, he stole a parking spot. I'm sure you've never been that person, but have you ever had it happen to you? You get the blinker on, somebody steals the parking spot. He stole the parking spot from the guy he was being interviewed by. <laughs> bad decisions, bad results. 
right? I saw a couple years ago, I saw a story of a guy in the Taliban. <laughs> I don't know how they even make them this dumb, but listen to this. Uh, there was a warrant out for him, and they had a wanted poster, and it said, if you find this guy, you get $100. He walked up to an American soldier with a picture of himself. He was like, see? I don't know how the rest of that story went. I'm guessing the American soldier did not go, oh, here's a hundred bucks, like I, probably a different result. Have you ever had a consequence you didn't expect from a decision that you made? I had a, a friend this summer, my family and I were on vacation, and uh, he had a, has a place down in Florida and decided to let me use his boat, and uh, that was a fun experience for our family. The first time we went out, we went out with him and his family, and he was showing me how not to sink it and uh, showing me where not to go and where to go and the rules of the water and all those types of things. And uh, partway through the day, we were having a great time together. We parked at this beach and met some other people and threw the football around and had a great time. And so the day came where I was taking his boat out without him. So just my wife and I and our four kids, and we're driving the boat around, and we've done it for a few hours and having a great time. It hasn't sunk, so I consider the day a success. And I thought, you know what? We should go park at a beach and eat lunch. And so we go park at a beach, and we're enjoying our time together. We eat lunch. Well, I'm a novice at this boating thing, and I parked in a bad spot. I parked at a spot where a bunch of other people were driving their boats by, and so the wake from their boats was hitting this boat and pushing it up onto the beach. When we decided to leave the beach, we weren't going anywhere because the boat had been beached. <laughs> now, I was there with my wife and four daughters, and they are strong women, but we weren't moving that 3,000-pound boat. You know, my 10-year-old daughter, just with their hands on it. It wasn't, nothing was happening with that. And I'm just standing there looking at the consequences, and it's expensive. <laughs> Have you ever had that? Maybe you double parked. You're going to do it real quick, or you, you know, ran into somebody because you're going to slide through the light at the yellow light, or whatever it was. You have these decisions where you don't think the consequences are going to be what they are. And we know our decisions have consequences. But have you ever thought about how God's decisions have consequences? As we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we've talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose you. If you're a follower of Christ, that means that God chose you. He adopted you into his family. He took, he's the one who did the work of making you from dead in your trespasses and sins to a, alive in Christ. In fact, it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that he's got good works that he's planned for you before the beginning of time. So God's made some choices. Last week, we called it our calling. Because in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says that we're supposed to walk worthy of the calling from which we've been called. And wrapped up in that word calling was all of the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3, which is your salvation. That you were dead in your trespasses, made alive in Christ. It's all of those, the choices that God has made. And today we're going to talk about how those choices have consequences. I've titled today's message, The Consequence of Your Calling. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, picking up where we left off last week. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 17. And uh, even though we stopped last week, we stopped really because we ran out of time. Uh, this passage goes with what we talked about last week. Now, in this series, if you haven't been with us, the first three chapters of Ephesians are the fuel or the motivation for what we're going to talk about in these last three chapters. The first three chapters, a ton of great truth, a bunch of statements about who God is and what God has done. There's only one commandment in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and it's to remember where you came from. That's the command. The rest of it's all what God has done. Now, in chapter 4 through chapter 6, there's a bunch of commands, but it's not just moral living for you as a Christian. It's in light of your new identity and the new experience and the new life that you've received in Christ, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Here's a new way to live, a walk that's worthy of the calling that you have. In fact, last week, I told you in chapter 4, verse 1, that 4, 1 starts a whole new section in the book. Remember, I had the seesaw up here, those of you who are here, and I was talking about balancing things out because the word axios… Worthy means things of equal weight on both sides. 
On one side of the seesaw, I had your calling. That's the weight of everything from chapters 1, 2, and 3. Made alive in Christ, given a new identity. We're unholy, now seen as holy. We're blameworthy, now seen as blameless. New identity, new experience, the power of the resurrection in you. Amen? That's a big calling. And then we talked about to walk worthy of that does not mean, does not mean that you earn your salvation. It does not mean that somehow you're paying God back for all the things that he's done for you. It does, however, mean that your life should be conducive to the weight of your salvation. And that's how those things are axios, worthy of one another. And what we see in our passage today is picking up from where we left off last week where he talked about this calling to represent Christ, to demonstrate the Trinity, to live as the body. And we talked about how each one of us has a spiritual gift. And look at what he says in verse 17. Now, or if you have the New American Standard, the NIV, it says, so, it's the same idea. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I bet that's no one's life first. Those are not the most encouraging words that we'll ever read in the Bible. But let's break them down and see why in the world does Paul put this here? Is he just trying to make them feel bad or is he talking bad about some other people or what's happening here? Now, the first word there, now, or some of your translations say, so. So what? Or now what? Now, in light of what we just talked about last week, or so as a result of what we were talking about. Now, I told you we already talked about chapter 4, verse 1. We don't walk through the other verses. Remember what happens after that? He says, here's the conduct. Here's what it should look like. Humble, patient, forbearance. It's a representation of Christ. And then because of your unity as a community of believers, it represents the Trinity, one Spirit, one Lord, one Father of all. And, and then in light of that, how do we live as a community? We're supposed to use our gifts, and God gives some leaders to the church, evangelists and apostles and teachers and pastors, and they're to equip the church. That was verse 12. We, I mentioned it, but we didn't spend time on it last week. The word equip in verse 12, it's oftentimes used in Greek literature for somebody who breaks a bone, and then they reset the bone. And so you could say that it means putting it back to its original state, so to equip the body. Some people say, because of the way it's used in other places in the Bible, it means adequate for service, uh, restored for use. And so I didn't finish the boat story that I was sharing with you earlier. Some of you wonder, so what did you do? How did you get that boat off the beach? Well, what happened, I don't make this stuff up. This is literally what happened. I'm standing there, my you know, 10-year-old's pushing on the boat. She's trying to get it. It's not going anywhere. And this guy comes walking up. He's got a funny accent. I found out he's from the Ukraine, but he said, uh, do you need some help? Well, she's got some pipes on her, but yeah, we could use an adult male over here. And so he and I start pushing on the boat. Still nothing happens. We wiggle a little bit. It's not sliding anywhere. And I said, hey, listen, the guy who let me borrow this boat, he's really generous. He's kind. He said he's done a bunch of stuff, the stupid stuff with the boat too. So I'm going to call him. And I get inside the boat. I go to turn the key. The key starts spinning in a circle. So that's not working. And I just said, hey, buddy, you know, here I am. The boat's stuck. And while I was doing that, my friend from the Ukraine went and gathered some other people. And they're walking down the beach toward me now. He comes back. He's got this other guy. This other guy climbs in, and he just starts taking charge. He goes, nice boat. Where'd you get this boat? And he's looking at me. He didn't say this. But I think he was thinking, how did someone as dumb as you get a boat less nice? <laughs> But he said, nice boat. Where'd you get this boat? I was like, I borrowed it. And he's like, it makes sense now. And so then he starts assessing the problem. And he, I found out as I was talking to him, he's a Marine. 
So if you know any Marines, uh, you know that they, they genuinely believe genuinely believe that you're either moving forward or backwards. You're not just sitting in neutral. And so he's, he's working the problem. He's looking at the problem. He fixes the ignition. And then he starts talking to his buddy that he brought with him. His buddy was a fisherman, I found out. And he said to his buddy, he's like, I want you to go get your boat. And he started listing off accessories he wanted him to go get. And then he said, here, I want you to sit in the driver's seat. And we, now that we can start this thing, here's what I want you to do. He started telling me how to drive the boat. And then he grabbed some moms that were on the beach. They were just there with their kids. The kids were playing with like different stuff in the water. He gets these moms over here. The, other, the fisherman comes back. Long story short, I start talking to the guy from the Ukraine while the guy's getting the fisherman boat. Found out he's a missionary. He's there in Florida. So we're talking about Jesus, talking about ministry. 15 minutes later, they've towed the boat out and I'm adequate for service. <laughs> Back to its original purpose. But I thought, what a picture of the body of Christ. You've got this Marine that comes in. He's using his leadership gift. You've got this missionary who came in. The missionary wasn't much help physically, just so you know. But he could gather people. And so he comes back with the fishermen and the Marine. The Marines directing traffic. The moms are coming up. I don't know if that was the gift of mercy or muscle. But they came up. And they start pushing the boat. And the fishermen's got all the equipment and the tools to use. And you think about how the church is supposed to work. In Ephesians chapter 4, you got the leaders that are supposed to lead to equip the body as everybody does the work of the ministry using their gifts. And so an evangelist goes and shares the gospel and a new believer comes to church and somebody with the gift of teaching starts teaching them what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. Well, somebody with mercy cares for the people's in need and there's acts of service and generosity and all the gifts are working together. And remember what happens if they don't. If the gifts in the body don't work together, then what happens is people start believing lies. They're blown and tossed by every doctrine, and so they start making up false versions of Jesus, and they're blown away in immaturity, and they're deceived. But if they do, then the body's built up, and people live out the new life that they have in Christ. They move to maturity now. So, once that's happening, once you're living a new life in Christ, what we see in our passage are things that God reveals, the consequences of this calling. Last week, walking conducive to the calling. This week, the consequences. First consequence is this. God exposes the lies of your old life when you're living the new life. God exposes the lies of your old life when you're living the new life. Look at verse 17. Now, this I say and testify. That's interesting. Why do you got to say it and testify to it, Paul? Isn't that kind of redundant? Like, why is he saying, I say and testify? That word testify is court language. It's like when a witness comes and they're going to give the evidence in court. And what he's saying is, I'm going to show you the difference between your old life and your new life. I'm going to give you the examples as we walk through this passage, kind of exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C of what your old life was like. Why would he do that for them? The reason is the same reason why some of us need to hear this passage today. Because we're tempted to go back to our old way of life. Even if you came to Christ as a kid, there's a way of life that you, by your flesh, naturally want to live where you think you know what's best. The Proverbs talk about that. There's a way that seems right to man. Google that. We go by our flesh. We follow the way of the world. We follow the devil. And Paul says, no, I'm warning you about this. I speak and I testify. And here's the exhibit A. It's futile. Exhibit A of why the old way of life is not the way to go is because it is a futile way of life. Look at verse 17 again. It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles, underline that, do, in the futility of their minds. That's interesting because that's a, an offensive verse. Like if you get this in, you know, your daily bread or whatever, you know, daily light or whatever devotional you're reading and at the top you've got Ephesians 4.17 and you read Gentiles. Most of us don't use the word Gentile, so we just read right past that. Here's what you need to know. 
They were Gentiles. So think about how offensive that is. Don't live like you live. I could, let me read it another way just to intentionally offend you. Uh, it's a, it could say this, that you must no longer walk as the Americans do. Or you must no longer walk as the Democrats do. And half of you said amen. And you must no longer walk as the Re- Republicans do. And the rest of you are like, that's right. And it was, it's intentionally offensive, what Paul's saying here. Don't walk according to the culture. Don't walk like a pagan. Don't walk like the Gentiles is what he's saying. Don't walk like the way you used to walk. Don't, remember, walk means to live. Don't live that kind of life. Why? Because... They do it in the futility of their minds. The word futility means uh, to lack substance. Sometimes it's translated vanity. Sometimes it's translated emptiness. Sometimes it's translated meaninglessness. There's a whole book in the Bible about this. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's one of the easiest books to jump in the middle of it and pull a verse out of context and be like, well, the Bible says that? You can do it in the book of Job too, also equally dangerous without putting it in context. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word vanity or futility or meaninglessness, however you want to translate it, is translated in the Bible 34 times just in that one book. It's King Solomon writing at the end of his life. He's one of the wisest men, probably the wisest man that's ever lived. At that time, he was for sure. And he's probably walked away from the Lord at this point in his life. And he goes through and he says, every, he, he was richer than anybody you could ever imagine. He says, have money, meaningless. Your job, meaningless. Family, meaningless. All the stuff you can accumulate, meaningless. It's pretty depressing if you just read through the book in the middle and you don't get the context for what's happening. Because what he's actually saying is, and what you see when you read the book as a whole, is he's saying life apart from God is meaningless. So if you're trying to live life apart from God and it feels meaningless, that's right. That is true. And it's not, we don't just need to give you comforting words. The Bible actually says, no, it's meaningless. See, if you try to find meaning apart from God, you end up with emptiness, futility. If you try to find meaning through God, you end up with Jesus. He is life. That's why the Bible says this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all the other stuff you're worried about, God's going to take care of that. All these things will be added unto you. Here's how we read it as Americans. American version of the Bible would read, seek first your own kingdom, whatever that means, your job, your career, your house, your family, your reputation, whatever it is. Seek first your kingdom, if necessary, add Jesus. Here's the problem with that. Jesus is not an ingredient for you to have a successful life. Jesus is life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's a reason his disciples, when he says to them, when a whole bunch of other disciples are walking away, he says, are you going to leave? And Peter says, you're the only option. You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? There's a reason Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy you. But I've come that you could have abundant life. See, Jesus is the only way to real life. He is real life. He offers eternal life. He's the way to abundant life. Jesus is the way. So if you try to get meaning from this life apart from God, you get emptiness. If you try to get meaning through God, he gives you Jesus. And what Paul's saying here is the way the Gentiles walked was trying to get meaning from this world, from their family, from their job, from their success, from their stuff. It's futile thinking. It's like eating cotton candy for a meal. There's something there, but there's no substance. It's gone. You eat enough of it, you get sick. It tastes good in the moment. This is how God brought me to Christ, was realizing how empty life is apart from Jesus. Because I'd do whatever I wanted to do, and I'd enjoy it in the moment. And then afterwards, I go, is that it? Is there more? And somebody hearing these words today might be in that spot. I want to share a quote from a guy named C.S. Lewis with you. 
It won't get you to Jesus, but it'll point you in the right direction. Listen to what he says. There's a book called Mere Christianity that he's written, um, one of the greatest thinkers um, in humanity. He says this, creatures, that's us, are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. Now, you've got to think about it. Is that true? It's not the Bible. It's just a guy saying this stuff. He says this to give evidence. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. A men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. Amen. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's true. And that's why, like Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find rest in him. And Paul's saying here, don't be tempted to go back to the old way of life. The old way of life, that's futile. That's an empty way of life. You see, Jesus, you want happiness? Jesus tells us how to be happy. And you know what he tells us? He tells us as followers of Christ that we're to be the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men. They would see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven because he is light. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Very inspiring. Put it on your bumper sticker. That could be your life verse. It's incredible. It's a vision for our church. But have you read it in context? Do you know what chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 says? It's the pathway to happiness. See, most Bible translations like to use church words, and so they use the word blessed. But in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, you'll see these statements over and over again that say, blessed, blessed, blessed. That's the word makarios. It means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the persecuted. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are those who mourn. Well, that's the opposite of what this world's going to tell you. You see, the problem for most of us is we just don't believe it. And see, the key for verses 14 through 16 of us being a city on a hill, the light to the world, is that we live in an upside-down kingdom because the king is Jesus, and we're following his kingdom, and he leads us to an upside-down way of life. And what Paul's calling us to in this passage is an upside-down way of life, and so he's showing us first the futility of the other way, and it doesn't work for anybody. It's never worked for anybody. So why do we think arrogantly it's going to work for us? It's futile thinking. He tells us why, because of our darkened minds. Exhibit B, darkened minds. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as you used to walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Talk about offensive. Try reading that to a community full of PhDs. (laughs) You're ignorant. Well, it's not about your IQ, okay? It's about a capacity to see. And you can't even see. So what you're ultimately going to be led to is what later in the passage, verse 22, 23, it calls deceitful desires. See, we're easily deceived. And we don't like to believe that. We like to think we're smarter. We like to think that we are, are shrewd and wise. And um, Let me just give you some secular stats on just things that happen in culture, and then we'll bring it back to the Bible. I was reading this week from the uh, Federal Trade um, Commission's website, FTC Stats. They say in 2020, more than 2.2 million people reported fraud. Okay? <laughs> now, I'm proud enough that I probably wouldn't report it. I don't know about you, but 2.2 million people reported it, telling the FTC that they lost $3.3 billion. Uh, The most common scams that were out there were people calling folks on the phone and saying they were either family members or there was an inheritance or there was a tax issue, and the FTC got 500,000 reports of that, costing people $1.2 billion, on average $850 a person. 
And then the FTC goes on to talk about scams. Uh, the second biggest scam that's out there is uh, companies writing reviews for their own company. <laughs> Tell me that's not shady. But the biggest is just lying in their advertisements. And so you'll read about what lawsuits that they've had with different uh, weight loss drugs. Uh, believe it or not, you cannot sit on your couch, eat potato chips, watch Netflix, take a pill, and be skinny. It doesn't work. But there's people that advertise that. And I guess that they must assume we're going to make more money selling this stuff than we're going to be settling lawsuits, and so we're just going to do it anyways. Uh, and there's lots of false advertising out there. Match.com was uh, sued last year for manipulating people into subscribing for accounts, and so they get people in vulnerable situations. People go through divorce, people who lose people. There's lots of manipulation out there and lots of deception. I was watching last night Shark Tank with my family, and there was a woman who came on, and she had a mirror that made you look skinny. And it's like, ooh, that's appealing. But it's not true, but it's appealing. And then she revealed to the sharks that she had sold that mirror to some major retail stores. <laughs> to which then the sharks started asking questions. Wait a minute. People don't know this? Like they're going into the dressing room and they look skinny in the mirror and they get home and they're like, what's wrong? Because <laughs> they don't have that mirror. And she's like, and that's why we need to sell them that mirror. And it's like, no, that's lying. And all the sharks said, we don't want to be a part of that deception. Sorry, see you later. But it's sold thousands of dollars and billions of dollars have been cost because of fraud and false advertising. And we've all probably been a part of it at some point. So if a marketer can deceive us like that, what if there was a supernatural being who was way smarter than you and his plan was to destroy your life? You don't think he can deceive you into thinking that the best way to go is the way the rest of the world's going? that what you feel and think is actually what's best for you rather than what God says. See, it's the darkened minds, but you see the problem was not actually intellectual at all. I've been doing ministry for over 20 years. I've yet to meet a person. So if you're that person, I would love to meet you, that was argued into the kingdom of God. See, the problem's not a mental issue. The problem is a heart issue. And that's what our text tells us next. It says, remember, futile thinking, darkened in their minds, ignorant. This is all intellectual language, but then look at what it says in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. It's the hard heart that's the problem. A hard heart is a heart that becomes insensitive to God. You see, there might have been a point in your life, if you have a hard heart, where God spoke to you and you felt convicted. You felt like you should do something. You felt like you should respond, but then you didn't respond. So the next time he speaks, his voice isn't quite as loud, and it's not quite as convicting, but you think there should be some change, but you didn't, and then your heart gets a little bit harder, and it builds up calluses towards God speaking. And eventually you get angry when God speaks to you, and eventually you just don't even hear it. Here's the scary part. It's not just for non-believers. Believers can have hard hearts too. Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers. So these are believers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But what's the antidote? What do we do, God? We need each other. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other, followers of Christ. And so how do we live this out in community? Paul gives us some analogies here in the next part of our passage. He says, but... That's not the way you learned Christ. And so he gives an education analogy. He's just been talking about intellect. He gives an education. That's not how you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, not everybody who reads these words will be Christians, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, 
And then he gives another analogy. It's a clothing analogy. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. Some people think this is an allusion to baptism. Because at one time in church history, people would change their clothes when they're baptized. They go into the baptismal waters with one set of clothes. They come out, they put new clothes on. And so they're saying there's a new way of life and put on the new way of life, the, the converted life, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And he's going to go on in this passage to talk about what does that look like lived out. And so the first consequence of our calling is that, that God exposes the old way of life, the lies of the old life. The second consequence, for those of you who take notes, is God displays his good news through your new life. He's displaying his good news, which is the gospel, through your new life and the way you live this life. Our world could use some good news, amen? Look at what he says in the next part of this passage. Therefore, so in light of what he just said, having put away falsehood, that's a negative command, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There's a positive command. But God's so gracious, he tells us why he gives the commands. For we are members of one another. There's the reason. Be angry, positive command. Don't sin, negative command. Don't let the sun go down in your anger, negative. Why? Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, negative. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, positive, so that, here's the reason, he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, negative. But only such is good for building up and fits the occasion, positive, that it may give grace to those who hear. There's the reason. There's a pattern here. And here's the consequence. Don't grieve. That word grieve means hurt. Don't hurt the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person. I want a personal relationship with you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the danger of a passage of Scripture like this. It can be read like a morality list, or you can grab the verses out of context and make arguments, and you're like, hey, stop stealing and start working, so there can't be socialism. <laughs> it's true, but that's not the point of the passage. Hey, you shouldn't lie. You should tell the truth. That's true. And there's true principles you can pull from teaching the Bible like that, but you're going to miss what's really being said if you never put it in context. It's the same as jumping into the middle of Ecclesiastes or jumping into the middle of Job. There's truisms in there that you're going to find. Hey, it's better to forgive than not forgive, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. These are just like true things. But remember our context. We're talking about chapter 4, verse 1, a life that's conducive to our calling. What was the calling? It's the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. You, not because of anything you did, were chosen by God. By grace, through faith, you've been saved by God. He forgave you with the power of the resurrection, raised you, gave you new life, gave you new identity, gave you a new experience of life so that you could put on display the glories of God. And remember what last week was when we talked about walking worthy. It's putting Christ on display. Let's go back to the passage, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 4. What were the things? Humility? That's not what I would have picked. That's what God picked. Remember Jesus was humble. Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality, he's got something to be held on to, but he humbled himself. Patient, proud person can't be patient. It's about patience, God's slow to anger, abounding in love. So as we do these things, we're revealing Christ. Gentle, gentleness, he describes himself as meek. I am meek and lowly of spirit. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest for your soul. 
forbearance, putting up with one another. He says about his own disciples, how long do I need to put up with you? That's, as we do these things with each other, we put Jesus on display. Remember, look at verses 4 through 6 of last week. In verses 4 through 6, it says there's one Spirit. So our unity reveals the Trinity. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father of all. So as we live in community, in unity, it reveals the Trinity. And so our lives that are conducive to our calling are lives that reflect Christ. And so then if this is gospel living, good news living, you've got to walk through these commands and go, do these commands reveal the gospel? And they do. Now, you don't need a pastor to figure this out for you, but think about this with me. Like you look at these commands and it says, first one, speak the truth. Don't lie, speak the truth. Let me ask you this question. How did you come to Christ? Somebody spoke the truth to you. I don't know if it was a parent or a Sunday school teacher or a random dude at a gas station. Somebody told you you were a sinner on your way to hell and you needed a savior and Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead and you believe that truth. The Bible says it like this. How will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? It's Romans 10, 14, speaking the truth. Go to the next command in this passage. Be angry, but don't sin. How does that reveal the gospel? Do you remember when we were talking about the wrath of God in Ephesians chapter 2, and I told you that without anger, there's apathy, that God's wrath actually reveals his deep, deep love for you? And so what happened at the cross was Jesus was absorbing the wrath of God. When you get angry at the right things, I'm not talking about because your sin didn't work out, because of your pride. I'm talking about when you get angry at sin, you get angry at injustice, you get angry at things that are the way they are in this world, you're actually commanded to do that in Scripture and you're revealing your heavenly Father. You look through here, like you see these other ones in here that you should work and, and so you can give. And so instead of trying to get everything for yourself, you're doing this so you can be generous. How did God show love? For God so loved the world, He gave His Son, John 3, 16. These, these are, this is gospel living this ha that we're being taught. Forgive, be kind. It's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Forgiveness, that's why Jesus died on the cross through his sacrifice. You could be forgiven. So as we forgive other people, people see the gospel. It might not be the full gospel every time we're doing something, but we're giving shadows, glimpses through gospel living. And it flows from our identity. And that's why, as I put these subpoints that are going to pop up on the screen, I didn't say, start being honest. I said, be a person of truth. Because it's who you are. If you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees you as he sees Christ. That means he doesn't see you as unholy. He sees you as holy. He sees you as blameless. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the truth. So you're revealing Jesus as you tell the truth. So be a person of truth. You look at that first command. Stop the falsehood. Start telling the truth. Because we're members of one another. And here's one of the things I think for us in just application. I don't think we realize how much we lie. Have you seen the movie Liar, Liar? It's an old movie. It's on like TBS and TNT all the time now. Uh, Jim Carrey is in it. I think his name is Fletcher in the movie. He's an attorney. Uh, his son at one point in the movie makes a birthday wish that his dad can't lie for a whole day. And then the funny part is to start seeing somebody who has to tell the truth all the time, which I think should be something for us to reflect on. Like he goes walking into his law office in, in one scene and his receptionist is standing there and she's got a haircut that looks like she kissed a light socket. All right, it's like crazy. And she says, do you like my new dress? And she's standing there and he says, without thinking, whatever takes the attention away from your head. And then he's like, whoa, what just happened there? And then another coworker, a fellow attorney comes walking by. He's pretty overweight guy. And he says, hey, Fletcher, what's up? And then he says back, your cholesterol, fatty, dead man walking. And he's like, whoa. And then another guy comes walking up that the day before had to tell him what his name was. 
And the guy comes walking up, and instead of saying, hey, buddy, hey, pal, he goes, you're not important enough to remember. And he starts moving towards his office. He's like, I just keep telling the truth. What's happening? Can you imagine if our entire world had to tell the truth for one day? Oh, yeah, I got a response. I've heard it said, I don't remember who I heard say it, but I remember hearing somebody say, if governments had to tell the truth for one day, the world would fall apart. If you think about it, like I don't know who your favorite politician is, but they lie, and you expect them to lie. I don't matter what side you're on, they're all liars. With the news, I don't care what channel you watch, they're all spinning the truth. We don't even expect the truth from the news anymore. We just expect an interpretation, and we'd pick the one that we like the interpretation, but like it's not even fact. It's just not like no one just goes, here's what happened. It's always a spin on what happened. We expect to be lied to. And then we lie. We exaggerate things. We, why were you late? We make up details to make ourselves look better. Like, can you? So we live in a world that does this. And you want to know how to be light in a dark world? Like, some of you are like, I don't know if I'm ready to go be a missionary in Benghazi. Like, somebody's shooting missiles. Just tell the truth where you're at. Like, you would stand out as light in a dark place. Let me tell you something about people that tell the truth. Most are scared to do it. Pastors are scared to do it. You know why we're scared to do it? Because people will leave our church. Oh, before you get too judgmental of the pastors, you know why the people in the pews don't do it? Because you're going to lose a friend or a job or a promotion or somebody's going to think something of you. It's the same idol. We all have the same idols. And so we don't tell the truth because we have a fear of man. And so we live in a darkened world where, and you want to talk about how darkened our world is. Like I can tell you, like I can tell you things that I think macro level that you would go, oh, yeah, that, this is definitely a dark place. Like, we murder people, and we call it a medical procedure, and then we label it politically as a choice. Like, put that and just think about that for a second. Like, I, I imagine most of you here, the Bible-believing Christians, are, are, are pro-life. I, I, I'm not saying you disagree with that. But think about how darkened your mind has to be to actually argue this is a good thing to do to kill someone who doesn't have a voice and then call it a choice. It's crazy. We think it's a good idea to bring drag queens in to teach our kids those stories in their schools. Like that's how darkened our mind, there's coming a day where I will not be allowed to read a verse in the Bible. I'm not talking about interpret it, but I can't even read about homosexuality without it being called hate speech, that I'll be labeled a, 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 some, cult. I'll still read the Bible just so you know, but it's going to label me some right-wing cult leader. If I read, Rome, you know what Romans chapter 1 says? That homosexuality is an evidence of a hardened heart. Now listen, if you've had an abortion, which there are people in here that have had abortions, God's great. You can be forgiven, but it was murder. Homosexuality, we want you here. I want you to come to know Jesus. God has a better plan for you than that. But it is sin. See, we can talk about that on a macro level. You know what the passage said in verse 19? It said that we practice these things. The word practice in verse 19, we don't have time to get into all this passage. It means to do business. We make business out of sin, is what it's saying. Has anyone heard of pornography? Statistically, half of you are addicted to it, just FYI. I don't know which half, but that half of the room. And so what we do on a micro level, so here's where I'll get real personal, is we lie to ourselves. It doesn't hurt anybody. I'm just looking. Oh, secular studies, you can read. We'll get into this a little bit more next week. We talk about the sexual immorality in the next passage. Um, tells you it impacts every relationship in your life. And the people you're looking at, most of them have been trafficked against their will. So don't lie to yourself and say it's not hurting anybody. And then and we lie about our taxes, and we lie about time, and we lie about our appearance, and we, we're lying all the time, even to ourselves. And we, so if you just be a person of truth, you would stand out. Now, I might not like everything you say to me if you're my friend and you tell me the truth, but I can trust you. 
because I believe over a period of time of a history of doing it, that you're always telling me the truth. And if you put this together with chapter 4 and verse 15, we're truthing in love, then I can not only trust the facts that you're saying, but actually trust that you're for me. Now we got something. See, that's what Nathan did to David in the Bible. And go read that. Second Samuel, when he confronts David's sin with Bathsheba. You know what David said it was like when no one else was confronting a sin? And there were a lot of people who knew what he did, by the way. He said his bones wasted away. Oh, we need more truth tellers. You can be that person. You can be those people. Be a person of truth. Be angry, but be a person of righteous anger. The Bible actually commands us to be angry. It says right here, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Without anger, there is apathy. Anger shows our love, but you've got to be angry at the right things. See, Jesus was angry in the Bible. I could tell you the story of the overturning the tables in the temple. You probably know that story. Let me read you another verse. In Mark chapter 3, he's angry at sinful hearts. He's talking to some religious leaders. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil? There's a guy with a withered hand there, to save life or kill. He looked around at them, and they didn't say anything. So he was mad at an unresponsive audience at church. So you got, got to give the preacher some feedback, all right? It's because of their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out. His hand was completely restored. He was angry. He was angry at people because of their condition of their hearts toward God. It's right to get angry at injustice. It's right to get angry at sin. It's right to get angry at sin that was done against you. See, sometimes uh, in church, we give this idea that because you're supposed to forgive, which is true, and we'll get to that in a couple of seconds in this passage, but if somebody wronged you, they stole money from you, they abused you, something happened, that you're supposed to just be cool with that. No, you're angry at sin. But you've got to direct that anger in the right way. You've got to deal with that anger in the right way. I read a story this week of a woman, woman whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver. The girl was 14 years old. She was walking to church. She got hit by a guy who had a re- repeated pattern of drinking and driving. He hit her. She flew 125 feet, died. He was passed out at the wheel. When he woke up, he drove to a different state. He eventually got caught, but didn't spend any time in jail. Would you be mad if that was your kid? Yeah, she was mad. But she channeled that anger in a positive way, and through legislation and awareness, she started an organization called uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD. But she channeled that anger, and I don't know if she's a believer or not a believer, but she saved thousands of lives through that anger. You see, the Bible says here to get angry, but the anger can be dangerous because it can fester and lead to what we'll read about in just a second, bitterness and clamor and slander and malice, and it's detrimental to your own spiritual life. If you don't deal with it in a positive way, it says right here in this passage, if you don't deal with it in a timely manner, you're inviting the devil into your life. It says here in this passage, be angry, but don't sin. Don't give him an opportunity. In other words, don't let the devil set up in your life. Don't let him have a foothold, some translations say. The next one says here, be a giver, not a taker. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hand so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love this. Like we can talk about how we steal and and those types of things in different ways, time and the tithe and taxes and like all that kind of stuff. But the Holy Spirit can convict you in that. What I love about this passage is the picture of conversion. Because it's talking about somebody's heart that at one time was all about themselves and getting things for themselves. That all this, now they have a different perspective and they're wanting to give to bless others. Last week I mentioned a story in Luke chapter 18 of a a rich young ruler. Uh, And at the end of that story, I didn't tell you that Jesus actually says it's impossible for a rich person to enter heaven. Think about that in RDU. Because biblically, everybody in America is rich. Homeless people are rich biblically in America. And so, 
If it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven, why is it that he tells the story he does in Luke chapter 19 of a guy named Zacchaeus? And it starts off by saying he was a rich man and he used his position to steal money from people. And then Jesus says to him when he sees him, I'm coming to your house. Can you imagine that? Like, how would that go in the south? If we bump into each other in the lobby today, hey, I'm coming to your house for lunch. <laughs> Come over anytime. You don't mean it, but whatever. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus trusts Christ. Then Zacchaeus stands up and says, I'm giving half my money to the poor with the rest of it. Anybody who I've wronged, come to me. I'm going to repay you plus interest. And then Jesus says, today salvation has come to your house. It's a picture of conversion to have a heart that is changed like this, that it works not for what you can get, but works for what you can give. You see here, not only stop stealing and giving, but be a person of pure speech. This is in verse 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So what's the opposite of corrupt talk? Only such that is good for building up. So the words you say about other people build up other people. As fits the occasion, that it may be that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, because when you do speak corruptly, it hurts the Holy Spirit, of whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so you can just ask yourself the question about your words, do these help other people? The Bible talks about how powerful the tongue is in James chapter three. Just a small spark can light a whole forest on fire, and your tongue can cause so much damage. We sang songs to Jesus today. Let me read you these verses in light of that. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Believers and non-believers are made in the likeness of God, by the way. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Be a person of wholesome, pure speech. Be a forgiving person. Look at these last verses. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. That's what happens if you don't deal with your anger, is those things. That's what happens if you don't guard your tongue, these things. That's what happens if you're willing to speak falsehood, these things. Verse 32 says then, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, and here's where it gets radical, as God in Christ forgave you. How did he forgive you? Let me tell you, you didn't deserve it, it was undeserved. Let me tell you, you keep abusing it, it's unlimited. Let me tell you, it's supernatural, unmistakable forgiveness. I remember when I first became a Christian, Somebody gave me this book. Uh, it's called Jesus Freaks, and it tells a bunch of stories of martyrs. And I thought it looked awesome on my bookshelf because it has these edgy pages. And you read it, and there's like some people in here from the Bible, and there's some people in here that are famous. But there's a story in here that for the 20 plus years, I have not been able to forget. And it's not a famous person. And unless you've read pages 226 and 227 in this book, uh, you probably don't know who she is. It's a young lady named Jackie Hamill. Jackie was a, a young woman who went on a mission trip with her church to the Philippines. They went to a, a prison to share the gospel with the prisoners there. And they were sharing the gospel and seeing some fruit of that. But while they were there sharing the gospel, a riot broke out. And when the riot broke out, the prisoners were overtaking the soldiers that were there at the church or at the, the prison. And the, the people that came from the church, the 14 members of her team, were then locked up and tortured, beaten, and awful things done to them for three straight days. Jackie shared the gospel with her captors and abusers. And she would lead her team in singing when there was a break from the abuse, which wasn't often. And there was one captor that actually dropped his weapon and, and trusted Christ, the team said, as they retold the story. But on day three, the soldiers went to overtake the prison back from the, the prisoners that were overtaking the place. And there was lots of gunfire and Jackie was shot. And she laid on the prison floor dying. Her team said that while she was bleeding, she actually put her hands up in the air and started praying for the soldiers 
and her captors. And as I heard that story the first time, I thought, is that even right? Like, that doesn't seem just. Like, they should pay. But I had a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. I thought forgiveness was saying, it's okay what you did. That's not what forgiveness is. Some of you have bad ideas of what forgiveness is. It's just like looking the other way. It's just no big deal. Here's the reality. All sin is punished. It will either be punished by God for eternity in hell, or it was punished at the cross of Christ. What Jackie was doing is saying, I hope that your sin is dealt with the same way my sin is dealt with at the cross of Christ, forgiving as Christ forgave you. And so was it right of her? Well, what did Stephen do in Acts chapter 7 when Paul was standing there giving approval to his death and he falls on his knees and says, don't hold this against them. The guy who's writing, forgive as you've been forgiven. You don't think forgiveness played a role in his own salvation, Christ on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That was for you and for me. That's how we were forgiven. That's what gospel life looks like. That's a consequence of your calling. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today thankful that you've given such a great salvation. And we often don't live great lives. But we have your Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that was the power that raised Jesus from the dead living in us. It's at work in us that can do beyond what we could ask or imagine in us. And Father, I pray right now that you would move in this room and move in hearts and lives and there's young and there's old and there's people that love you and people who hate you and people that are struggling and people that are depressed and people that are experiencing joy and you know every story. Would your Holy Spirit move in this room, convict where conviction is needed, encourage where encouragement is needed, comfort, reveal, show yourself so that not a single soul can leave this place today the same as when they walked in. God, will you meet with us? Meet with us as we sing this last song. Meet with us as we we fellowship in the lobby. Meet with us as we pray together as as believers. Father, I pray if there's somebody who doesn't know your son, Jesus, that they'd be overwhelmed with who he is today, that they would want life, that they would want the way to you, that they would want truth. In Jesus' name I pray.